tonight I would like to speak about a, a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, the subject of me. <laughs> the meing and the mying that, um, that we all do about the subject of, of, of self, subject of ego, subject of I, me, mine. And I'm, I've been debating as I sit here about two prologues, and I think I'll, this one seems to be keeping, keeps insisting itself into my mind that it's something I'd like to uh, read as a, as a beginning, but I'll probably share the other one as well. But here's the first one. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The Seamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed to the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. So this is a little bit of a window into the, the problems with personality view, with ego. But as I, even though this one may tickle your, your funny bone a little bit, it's, a, it's actually a, a, ser- a serious matter. Uh, how uh, our our nature, how each of us um, is so hungry to be somebody. Is we are so um, vulnerable, so in need of, of love, care. And it says something about our conditioned nature. This is from Hafiz. So just a, again as a, a framing of what tonight's... Uh, comments will be about. Hafiz's poem called uh, Admit Something. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. (laughs) Still, though, think about this. This great pull in us to connect Why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That's always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. The whole purpose of seeing into, seeing through, working with, loving the self-idea, loving the ego, transforming it from being a problem to a cause of compassion 
the, this, the process of working with our self-view is, at least for me to a certain degree, is the, um, the promise of it is the return to that uh, light of freedom where you do have the full moon in your eyes and you're offering yourself rather than coming out of that place of hunger, unslakable thirst that the Buddha called it, the translation for tanha or craving, but rather giving, uh, expressing your light, your awakened nature with, um, with goodwill, with compassion, with, uh, with responsiveness. That in order to light the, our eyes, to put the full moon back in our eyes, we need to turn the light on the, the various um, delusions, very, the kinds of confusion that play through our mind. And I know that uh, early in the retreat, I used as an example, and some of you may remember this, I said, I used the translation or the words of James J. Audubon where I said, uh, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. Remember that. So I'd like to actually elaborate I'm not going to elaborate. I'll elaborate both on the bird and the field guide book. But I think most of the focus tonight will be on the field guide book. Because that is where what we have been consulting uh, from beginningless time to define ourselves, to uh, prop ourselves up, to tear us ourselves down. And in the process, we have missed, uh, we've missed our, our actual nature. And hopefully over the course of this retreat, you have reclaimed, you've recovered your your nature. You're more comfortable in those moments where you're not defined by the field guidebook, like even this moment. See, I can tell everyone's much more settled in to, uh, in this moment, not being anybody in particular, but just being yourself. Not being in the story of yourself, but just being in the direct experience of yourself. And perhaps the realization that really as you are right now, check it out though, that as you are right now, before you can, before you can remind yourself of your situation, your issues, when you're just immediate and present, you're actually quite fine. There's not a person here that could, that could um, convince me otherwise. As one of my teachers uh, said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. But now let's think about the field book, field guide book. The field guidebook is the is the the narrative, the story of you, your personal history. Your um, it's usually had, there's a, a wonderful drama that plays through our mind. Anybody seen it during this retreat? <laughs> and this, but this drama, it's it. If you really pay attention to it, 
over time it starts to seem hysterical. You know, the moment when you're the greatest person in the world, who's, as Leela was saying last night, you're really getting it. And then within five minutes, a little unpleasantness, and you're the worst yogi. And it's a, a stream of, get me out of here, can't stand this, restless, worry, Ugh, exhausted, doubt, what we call a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> and, And nothing really happened except a moment of pleasant followed by a moment of unpleasant. But yet in our mind, it was the defining moment of our retreat, of our existence. And the conclusions, I had a great retreat. I didn't have such a good retreat. I've been hearing a little bit today. I do it myself, so you've got a lot of company. But... We're all in a little process of sizing it up, (laughs) fitting it into our our view of whether we're okay or not. But usually, because it's all about a story, it's a little shaky. We're not so sure. And that not so sure uh, tends to, we don't actually let ourselves feel that vulnerability of having our, our, most often we don't feel the vulnerability of having our life defined by the little narrative that's going on in our mind, the conclusions that we make, the doubts, the fears. If we actually just tapped into the vulnerability of that, the shakiness of, our, of that story, it's a story of somebody that's always got something that's a little bit wrong, and there's a sense that not just that things are wrong, but there's something a little wrong with me. If we actually touched into the feeling of that vulnerability, it would just break our hearts. It would break our hearts and we would land in that that pool of compassion. But out of ignorance, out of not seeing clearly, we take those moments and the, the feelings that are registered from those things that go through our mind, react to our own thoughts and our own conclusions, and it produces even more tension, and then that tension, that inner insecurity, I don't know if you can relate to this, but it, it then spawns a whole new search, a whole new mission to find relief some, at the next retreat, or maybe doing a different kind of retreat. And as we, as we go along, the whole view, the whole world that gets created in our mind generates the, um, the, the story of me, the profound drama of the one I call myself who has come from the distant past and all my, and you know, it's that whole view is born of trauma, of, of family imprint, of gender, of race, of so many things. It's so innocent we come into, uh, come into these views but our mind just keeps reinforcing that I am defined. My whole existence is defined by where I came from as though there's a past where I came from that's behind me. And I'm moving through the present on my way to the future. Of course, there's no future and there's no past. There is only this kind of unfolding now. And 
all of that gets missed and our life gets framed into this very narrow vortex of time. Time is very kind of narrow in the way we think about it. And as we've discussed in other times during the retreat, once, that I, once I've taken birth into that desire to be, to find my happiness, and it depends on the future, there is always in my mind the possibility in that little world, in that world of the, of the self-story, there's always a possibility that the future won't make me happy, that it won't deliver on uh, the desire that I have to, to feel okay. And so I'm left with in- increasing the physical manifestation of living in that, that internal drama is that I'm, my body goes into a state of suspended happiness, into a state of suspended well-being, held hostage by, the, by my imagination, waiting until that future that unfortunately that never arrives. Because as we realize when we stop, time is only and always now. That's the field guide book. And it's um, and the, the bottom line is that one that plays through your mind, that whole little drama, it describes someone who doesn't really exist. It doesn't really, that one's an imaginary one. Where is it now? Where is that story now? In this moment, after the last thought passed and before the next one comes. Where is it? And the one that sits here, it's clear, even though that one may not exist, you are here. I always love to this point when I talk about this because I just get to totally take in, and perhaps you get to take in, your here-ness and now-ness, your, your, um, just your unique expression of life, the flavor of you as you're feeling here, as you're here. That could not, that, that couldn't be any different than you are. That's actually in direct, on direct, on direct experience, or at least. On present evidence, you're so enough. Is anybody here, if you don't look into your imagined past and the imagined future, is anyone here lacking? Is this moment lacking? What can you say about yourself from the, from the vantage point or from the from just where you're sitting? If you don't look, if you don't, uh, if you don't consult your memory.
What can you say? What's here? I don't mind if anybody says something. (laughs) Don't have to, but I can tell you what I've heard when I've asked this question before. I hear peace, openness, freedom, sometimes a little (coughs) nervousness. But those nervousness is just nervousness. And all we've done is we've stepped out for a moment. And this is not to deny the, all that goes on in our lives, but we've stepped out of our situation. We've stepped out of the, the story of our life for a moment and just felt our life. Of course, what we feel here is the residue of, of what we've thought and felt. But when we simply feel the residue, it doesn't define us as not enough. It doesn't define us as needing something other than to just be attended to. Often, we, when we just stop, we feel that nothing's wrong. Is this just me? (laughs) So this is why it's so important to see the difference between the bird, you, and what the field guidebook says. The field guidebook will suggest erroneously that you need to go out in search of relief. So you may in this moment, you may in this moment feel a little bit of the the breeze of relief of having suspended some of those, uh, some of your self-stories, your views. You've dropped the past, you've dropped the future for a few moments. And we all have this capacity. It's literally a split second, a half breath away, and it's fulfilled every moment that where we're where we're mindful. You know, when, you, when there's mindfulness, just feeling the step, it's not, I'm being mindful right now. That's a thought. It's just feeling the step. You don't need to have that whole little story going on. Now, if the story's going on, you can see it as story. But in a moment of mindfulness, just a simple moment of mindfulness, it cuts through the drama. You may, it may not seem, it may seem quite mundane in moments. Okay, I've lifted another foot, I've swung it through space, and I placed it. Wow. <laughs> but it's not so much what's present in that moment, but it's what's absent. It's the absence of any sense of me in time. It's the absence of any problem the absence of any greed in that moment, the absence of any hatred in that moment, the absence of any um, confusion or delusion. There's just what there is. It's just that step, just that breath, just that mood, just that noticing of the, of the meaning and the mind that my mind is doing. Oh, that moment, the drama stops. Or at least the belief in the drama stops. 
and I'm noticing thinking. So we don't stay in this state of simplicity very much in our life. Don't even trust it. Much more devoted to, much more uh, identified with the story of our past. Because it's a beautiful story and unique and rich in each person's life, forged by all the, the experiences that we've had. And we don't want to, again, we don't want to throw out this story because each of our stories is so rich. But we don't want to have our whole sense of ourselves limited to our story. It misses so much of what's, what's always and already here. And so it's really helpful to see the difference between the bird and the field guidebook, to notice these simple moments where we're nobody in particular but totally ourselves. where we really don't need anything. We're not in the moments of mindfulness, not hungry ghosts. You know, the hungry ghost is described as one of the planes of existence. It could be a metaphor for the states that we go into. But the realm of the hungry ghosts, ghosts is a realm where the beings have um, little tiny mouths and huge stomachs, insatiable and So we can stay here for a moment, free of that whole identity. One moment, just stepping, just hearing, just sitting in this room. But we don't stay here very long. And usually for most of us, very quickly a thought arises. Today we included thought. And someone said, or some other study, besides the one where 50% of the time that we're lost in thought or daydreaming, Someone also said that we have uh, 65,000 thoughts every day. And that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. (laughs) But that thought suddenly arises. And if it's noticed as a thought, it just, it reveals itself. It's not separate from awareness. Awareness, it just, it's like that little cloud that passed through the empty sky. But that thought, when it goes unnoticed, what does it do? It's, as Dujim Rinpoche says, it spreads out into ordinary thinking. The chain, and he calls this the chain of delusion. And pretty soon we are, without even knowing it most of the time, we are, we are in a very quiet way taking birth into that imaginary me again somewhat disembodied, somewhat disconnected, our body left in a feeling of having been abandoned by being lost. And then the tension builds. And in order to to relieve the tension, the mind just keeps generating more strategies, more reactivity, more um, a, a plan to somehow relieve the tension that's built up. And it usually gets projected in the pleasant with um, fantasy, uh, unpleasant with, with sometimes unpleasant fantasy, revenge, because that, that uh, what we've felt is a feeling of uh, once we enter into that world, that disconnection, 
creates a feeling of vulnerability. It's as though that whole house that we, the, the, the house that we can rest in when we're present, we've just entered into a very flimsy house, the house of vulnerability, the house of tenderness. But in order to satisfy that vulnerability, the tendency is to keep going farther and farther afield and be, and be convinced in that little world that we go into in our mind that uh, it's almost universally a story of why I can't be happy now, why I can't be okay now. And that just increases the tension. And we literally enter the world of what the Buddha called bhava or becoming in that toppling forward to that imagined future. This is what Nagarjuna, the great um, the chain of delusion, the whole world of me and mine that we enter into in our minds. This is he called in his uh, poem called Someone. Blocked by confusion, I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world. It leads to experience I crave to have and to avoid. Craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free, to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts will cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So what we're doing is we are becoming the wise that see things as they are, that sees the activity of that, uh, of that self-maker, our mind that makes self, and then even using our self-stories as a cause, as a reminder, as a cause of compassion, as a reminder of our love, ultimately of our love of being just where we are, just as we are. This is the shift that we make, moving out of the gravitational, the narrow gravitational field of, of I'm not enough. Any of you ever feel that? Out of the gravitational field of uh, the world's not enough. People should be different. Everything should be different. I need this. I need, need more. Moving out of that gravitational field to the wider, as you, many of you may have tasted today, the wider gravitational field of presence, of awareness, of openness. And we think of it as linear, but what we're doing is we're just, in a sense, while we're here, we're just brushing the dust of memory so that we actually see what's always and already here. But we start to think, oh, I, I had that experience at the retreat. 
And then I have to go back to the retreat to get that experience again. But really what the retreat just reveals to you is what you can always, always refer to in the middle of your daily life, in the midst of it all. The nature of your heart and mind are exactly the same. You are as, not, as enough in your daily life as you may feel in this moment. It is only the idea of yourself that is not enough. It's that one that you have been born into in your mind. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers, torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. So we are continually, moment after moment, born into this little dream. But it cannot capture you. It's not, it can't define you. And that's the shift that we make. Do we see, oh, that's the field guidebook. And until we actually gain some confidence, conviction. This view of ourselves, the perspective of the, the person who is uh, always unslakably thirsty, un, un, uh, unsatisfied, this the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, personality view or self-view. And it's useful to notice what it is that we hook our wagon to, what it is our mind really, um, what are the triggers for this, um, this self-idea to really get going, to really hang its hat. And the most obvious one, an innocent one, is that is our, is our body. This is where the, the story of self is so much uh, revolves around uh, this, what he called this fathom-long body. And not realizing that the, until we actually begin to wake up to the nature of our bodies, that to whatever degree I make my identity hooked to my body, where there is, I think my body is me. Now, of course, my body is me and your body is you. That's conventional reality. But meditative understanding, the wisdom of the Dharma, sees that this is, as my friend Jack Kornfield said, this is a rent-a-body. This body doesn't belong to anyone. It came into existence through no fault of mine. It didn't have to be this way. (laughs) Out of control. Not self. But yet I'm not the same, as Nagarjuna put it, I'm not the same or am I different from all those things that cause me. And that's that's the understanding that I'm... And I, I don't really exist independently as I think I do, I'm the, as though I'm the cause of the world. We take so much personally. We, we were just born. And do you think our body said now, or our mind said, okay, now grow up? And now get sick, now get old and die? No. So much identification with the body, and to the degree that our self story gets going about the body, we are just day after day 
building the building blocks of greater and greater insecurity and vulnerability. Now, with all of these things, it's not to judge ourselves about it. It's, it leaves us just raw. We're all raw from so innocently hooking our wagon to something that's so unreliable. And so every time you see your, the insecurity about your body, your body image, your, your aging, your whatever it is, you should, it should be the cause of loving yourself up. This is really a love talk. You should be loving yourself all over the place. Love that how, as I often talk about this, is loving the house that ego builds. Because it's, it's just, we're so vulnerable, especially when we hook ourselves to our body. That's one way. A few statistics to perhaps put this, the selflessness of the body in perspective. Human beings spend a third of their lives sleeping. Each person has a unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. (laughs) Sneezes can travel up to over 100 miles per hour. Takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. It takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink. This is very personal. Most people blink 25 minute times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. Now, is there a blinker there? Who blinks? Who blinks? Is there a blinker? See, nobody can really answer. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Every breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. The average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit it in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. That's from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed, this one's really gross. (laughs) Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. (laughs) Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. Body makes a new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new replaces new head hair every two to five years. The body replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. The body grows new skin once a month. The body replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells of your body will die and be replaced with new cells all while you listen to this sentence. (laughs) So in other words, at any given moment, parts of our body are appearing and disappearing. So you think that you are your physical body. Which body are you talking about? So why I say innocent is because our identification with our body depends on the proximity of our observation. We don't usually look this closely. So we, with meditation practice or with science, this is where they converge, we look deeply into the nature of the body. If you go deeply enough into it, you can't find anything there. 
It's space. But from, the, from a distance, it appears, and our whole life, to a certain degree, until we start to unravel or deconstruct the world. And the whole, remember, the whole purpose of deconstructing it is to, to see not just through our own self-illusion, but see through the illusion of separateness, that we're all in this together. Joseph Goldstein, I took a walk with him uh, a couple days ago, and he said this one fellow who had just been a, a teacher, a meditation teacher, who had just been through this, this very uh, difficult illness, and it really opened his heart. And he translated, he wrote a new translation of the Four Noble Truths. The first truth, which is often loosely translated, is there's suffering, there's stress, there's that which is difficult to bear, unsatisfactoriness. He translated it as, we're all in this together. And that's actually, a, it's very profound teaching. It's the, both the universality of suffering, but it's also uh, when we really see at the root of our being, we are we're blown by the winds of, of interdependent circumstances. We're, just, we're not as alone as we think we are. And partly because of the proximity of our observation, we miss that. And we just spin a world of, of separateness. Because conventionally speaking, yeah, you're over there and I'm over here and I'm serving this role and that role, but this is a, this is a dream. We're actually like different waves that have emerged or arisen on the ocean. And yet our delusion is that we think that we're the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean, not realizing that wave has never been separated from the ocean. Just a quirk of consciousness. So the identification with the body generates a lot of the personality view story. Why it's so valuable to just stop. One, we could put ourselves under a microscope, pay attention to moment to moment, but also just to stop and see the difference between the field guidebook version of our body, which is too tall, too short, doing this, doing that, to what's the direct experience. In fact, when we connect with it, and perhaps you did today in that guided meditation, when you connect with the the direct experience, it can, at moments, feel just like points of feeling or stars in an evening sky. You don't feel body. You feel sensation. You don't feel self. You feel presence, aliveness. And in those moments, where's the problem with your body? Of course, the painful moments in our body are not so easy to be with, but that's what we learn how to accommodate here and have them remain in the, in the realm of simplicity. Pain is pain. And beginning to tease out the difference between Pain and suffering. Suffering's the field guidebook. It's the whole reactive patterning and the drama about the pain. Now we're all conditioned to do that, so we have to be uh, merciful with ourselves about it. But part of what happens here is a shift in our identification with the body. Yet we use the body to see through it. So the other 
source of huge amount of personality view that we, as a culture, we are so marvelous at, um, at um, generating. How it gives, it gives us a sense of satisfaction to a certain degree. It's the, it's this personality view that is, um, that is bound up in the, um, it's bound up in, in a desire, in fantasy. So the whole story of me is about the past. So we were, we were bound to the past and then we're hostage to the future. If I'm not quite there in the past, I've got to get through here, the present moment turns into this place I just passed through on my way to when I finally get what I want. Such a great example of this. I debated about reading it, but uh, it's just such an example of the way the, our longing uh, just draws us out of the, uh, the living present and into, into the dream of what, we, what will make us happy. And this, this poet, George Bilger, has a sense of humor about it, as you'll get. And hopefully you'll have a sense of humor about your longing, but also merciful toward your longing. And I'll tell you a little story from my own practice that happened here at IMS. But first I'll read the poem. It's called Unwise Purchases. They sit around the house, not doing much of anything. The boxed set of the complete works of Verdi, unopened. The complete Proust, unread. The French cut silk shirts which hang like expensive ghosts in the closet and make me look exactly like the kind of middle-aged man who would wear a French cut silk shirt. (laughs) The reflector telescope I bought, I thought, would unlock the mysteries of the heavens, but which I only used once or twice to try to find something heavenly in the windows of the high-rise down the road, (laughs) and which now stares disconsolately at the ceiling when it could be examining crab crab nebula. The 30-day course in Spanish, whose text I never opened, whose dozen cassette tapes remain unplayed, save for tape one, where I never learned whether the suave American conversing with a sultry-sounding desk clerk at a Madrid hotel about the possibility of obtaining a room actually managed to check in. I think that one thing led to another between them. (laughs) And that by tape six or so, they're happily married and raising a bilingual child in in Seville, Sevilla, or Seville, however you pronounce it, or Terre Haute, Haute, Indiana. But I'll never know. Suddenly I realize I have constructed the perfect home for a sexy Spanish-speaking astronomer (laughs) who reads Proust while listening to Italian arias. (laughs) And I wonder if somewhere in this teeming city there lives a woman with, say, a fencing foil gathering dust in the corner. (laughs) Near her unused easel, a rainbow of oil paints drying in their tubes on the table where the violin she bought on a whim lies entombed in the permanent darkness of its locked case next to the abandoned chess set a woman who has always dreamed of becoming the kind of woman the man I've always dreamed of becoming has always dreamed of meeting.
And while the two of them discuss star clusters and Cezanne, while they fence delicately in in Castilian Spanish to the strains of Rigoletto, she and I will stand in the steamy kitchen fixing up a little risotto, enjoying a modest cabernet while talking over a day so ordinary as to seem miraculous. You can see there's such a pleasure in the, the associated with, with desire that we innocently enter into these, these worlds of endless worlds of desire. But they, as we talked about the other night, they leave, they leave our fantasies, as Leela was saying last night, they just don't, we're not very happy when all is said and done. We're, we're actually conditioning the felt experience of that is tight stomach, hope, expecting, waiting, postponing a sense of well-being. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't have fantasies, and especially if you can enjoy them, if you can see the humor of them. But first things first, okay, find your home right here. Find that enoughness right here. And then go about dreaming, building, be- saving the world, but without the demand that it has to, has to fill the hole in you. Because that hole that's made by our personality view, it's, it's insatiable. They keep, as one poem says, they keep moving the golden dreams. So I had a, a, a little experience with the, with the wanting, the wanting mind. I was in uh, 1984, this dates me a little bit, I came on uh, the, uh, it was the third time that I'd, I'd come on a, a three-month practice period here at IMS every year annually. They used, to, is it still three months? Yeah. Three-month practice period. And I was, uh, I was really delighted because I had this little room that was about as wide as these two Zabutans, but it was long enough, about 12 feet long. It was in the annex. Those rooms are, they're a little bit rearranged. The size of them, the shape of them has been rearranged. But I was doing all of my sitting and walking in the room. And while I was, while the world was breaking apart and deconstructing reality, I was also at the very same time, which I realized as part of the process of meditation, is I was... Uh, I was going through a bit of a, of a psychological regression. I was getting really young. And it was tapping into feelings of being quite uh, young and innocent. And <clears throat> as an adult, I was uh, showing up at the retreat. I had always had this kind of irritation with myself and a little bit critical because I, was, I would characterize myself as one of the... Uh, of the three common character types that the Buddha talked about. There's three common character types, the grasping type or the greed type, the aversive type or the angry type, and the deluded type. And we have all three of them, but we tend to be predominant by one. The greed types, when the going gets tough, they go shopping or they, you know, they want something. They, 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 get, they, they move into, easily into desire and to, and to um, feeding the wanting mind. The aversive mind gets busy complaining and criticizing and seeing what's wrong with everything. And 
and they're actually very keen and discriminating about all the things that should be different. But it's a it's a very it's a it's a very intense it's a painful state of mind. Greed type. So often because it's associated with fantasy and getting, and it, on the surface it looks fairly pleasant, as George Bilger's fantasy. The deluded type tends to just uh, get confused or go unconscious, not see very clearly. And an example that's often used is when a, what happens when a greed type goes in a hotel room, they immediately go for the bed that they want, or the aversive type sees what's wrong with the room, and the deluded type says, you know, just put me anywhere. Just, uh, <laughs> So I would characterize myself as the, as the greed type, uh, the grasping type. Again, it's not personal. It's just what, it's part of the conditioning, born of circumstances. Who knows where those started? And that's another reflection that we can all do to take ourselves to expand beyond that, that uh, endless criticism of ourselves. There's not one criticism in our mind that there's not one thing about us that has just us as its origin. We are completely tied in a net of, as, as Martin Luther King said, in a net of mutuality, in a interdependence. And there's no beginning. There's no beginning to you. And that's the, as Nagarjuna says, that's the deathless teaching for, of Buddhas who care for the world. They realize we're all in it together. So anyway, I'm in, the, in this little room, and I unfortunately I didn't have a closet. And I had just a rack where my clothes, which I had determined I had way too many of, uh, my clothes were hanging on the, on the rack on the other side of the room. And I had brought all my accoutrements, my pillows, and had made it just nice for myself. And at that point where I started to feel very vulnerable and young and two, two months into a three-month practice period, I, um, I had this moment, and I'm sure you've had many moments like this in your life, where just I needed, like a one-year-old or a two-year-old or even an adult, I needed to be held. I needed to be squeezed, hugged. And there was clearly in that little room, IMS, uh, there's lots of little side stories about that room. I'll just give you one little one. So I was so happy about having this little room. And then the first rainstorm came. And it turned out that the main pipe, that all the rain from the roof of the annex, all, it fed all into this pipe that went right down through my room. It was deafening. <laughs> Absolutely deafening. I, it was almost unbearable. But then, of course, the weather got colder and it stopped raining, and it was not a big deal, but it was one of those things. So there, there's always something. There's always something. And I remember going into the office, what do I do about the. You know, we get this, this sense of yogi mind where everything takes on epic proportions. But I'm sitting in the room, I need, I'm needing to be held, there's nobody to hold me. And there on my, I'm half on my little foam bed. Do they still have the foam beds? They don't have the foam beds. These are just pieces of foam rubber, that's what he said. So I had my pillows and I, I rolled off my Zafu onto the bed, took all the pillows, the Zafu, 
just started to wail. I wailed. I cried to my heart's content. Wailed so hard. Wrapped myself in all those. And I held myself. I held myself. And then I looked at the room. I looked at all this extra stuff I had that I didn't, that I usually judged that I didn't need. And in a flash of insight, I realized, wow, all of that, all that stuff, all the extras, was the way that I was trying to hold myself. And from, it was like a, a blast of self-compassion, of seeing that even my, my most neurotic habits, and I, you've heard me say this in different ways over the retreat, even my most neurotic habits were an attempt to bring relief, to soothe, to, to hug myself. And from that day forward, I've been a friend to myself. That whole, that whole case for the prosecution against myself stopped. And I can say it with a lot of conviction. And it can for you, too. When you realize, if you just reflect a little bit and realize that all, your, all of your craziness, and you know this, is, as Bhante Gunaratna says, sometime in the process of, of meditation, I think I even have the quote with me. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you never noticed. But all of our... (laughs) All of our craziness is really, all our acting out is in some measure a sign of love we have for ourselves, an attempt to hold ourselves. So we can, we can start to make that little shift and be a little more friendly. Let every moment of longing or aversion or worry, let it all be the reminder of, of, uh, of opportunity for a moment of loving kindness. And then turn it on yourself and then turn it on every hungry ghost out there. Every being that you see with a little mouth and a huge stomach. So our, another place to pay attention to, to turn, to turn uh, our attention to and turn our loving kindness to is the self-view that, um, that gets generated uh, that is preoccupied with comparing. The comparing mind, what the Buddha called mana or conceit, the conceit I am. The tendency of the mind that constructs a version of you moment by moment that's either above, below, or equal to others. Any of you recognize that? And that as long as this, as long as the comparing mind is taken to be real, it's taken to be really defining of who you are, even though there's nobody here that can be defined 
on present evidence as being above, below, or equal. So every one of those little comparisons is about the story of me. It describes somebody who is just a, um, a fictitious version of you. But the you that's sitting here in full color, the beauty of you, cannot be captured or described in any kind of comparison. But that's what our mind does. And it's one of the great torments of the mind, one of the great uh, web weavers of, of self-contraction. Um, and our body feels it as feeling either inflated and then insecurely being threatened by diminishment. And then we go above, below, good, better, best, always measuring, always measuring. As Rumi says, don't run around this world for looking for a hole to hide in. There are always wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rest comes when you're alone and present with the divine. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have this address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you run back and forth. Try to close that one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So how can we do that unless we actually see our mind comparing? Be able to know, oh, that's the comparing mind. Instead of believing that I am measurable, that I am, that I, that I am, it's such an insult to you to characterize yourself as above, below, or equal to anybody. So, but we do that, and so we, and we're tormented by it. So, we see the effect of it. We feel love toward ourselves instead of, instead of, we can feel love for ourselves. We see it as thoughts. We can see that's a bubble. It's not me. Not mine. That's not what I am. That's not who I am. We compare ourselves incessantly to ideals. So many people were tormented on the retreat, comparing to an ideal based on the past, hostage to the future, whether your retreat was going to turn out as good as the last one, or whether you're going to reach nirvana, be, be a great spiritual being. That's, even our ideals become they can either be great supports or they can be torments. So many people, we all fall into this. That's why this wonderful, simple poem was written, or this passage was written to describe this, uh, the futility of the comparing mind. And yet the, the acknowledgement that we, we tend to fall into these kinds of ideals. It says, if you can start the day without caffeine, or, or stimulants, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat some, the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, 
if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you're probably the family dog. So living in the world of our imagination, we all imagine it. It's a beautiful thing that we can imagine. It's a beautiful thing that we can create versions of ourselves in our mind. It's a miracle. But the point of our practice is to not um, believe that anything that we can think can define us. That anyone we think about, Leela referred to this last night, that as Munindraji used to say, a thought of your mother is not your mother. And the same is true about yourself. Thought of yourself is not yourself. So slowly, slowly together and in our own way, moment by moment, that's all we have. That's all we have. And that's all you have to handle is a moment at a time. But we come out of the tangle of our, of our imaginary views of ourselves. And as Rumi puts it, we live moment by moment in silence. As he says, flowing down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Seeing through the self-illusion and consequently seeing through the illusion of other. Finding in this present moment that one taste, a taste of connection, a taste of love. So I'd like to um, end with a little poem from Derek Walcott, one of my favorites, called Love After Love. A time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. May all beings Live in peace. May all beings be free.
We have about 30 minutes for walking practice. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thanks for your practice up to this point. Uh, there will be a little chanting at the next sitting. And Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.